The scripture text for this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with me will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you, and we just ask, Lord God, that you would give us your help this morning as we fix our eyes upon you. Lord God, I pray that you would help us and confront us and comfort us. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our thinking, Lord God, where we think we have you figured out. I pray, Lord God, for a grace to help us to see that we do not have you figured out. Because you are greater, you are bigger, you are more majestic than we could ever imagine, and that's a good thing. So I pray, Lord God, that you would expand the borders of our heart, expand the borders of our mind this morning. And forbid it that we would ever get to a place of complacency, Lord God, with you, where we think we've heard everything there is to hear, where we think we've understood all of your ways. And I pray, Lord God, that you would comfort us with the security that you are the sovereign God, the king of the earth. Everything that comes our way is by your decree. And you are good in everything that you do and you work for those who trust in you. So I pray that you would put our feet upon a solid rock this morning. And I ask God that you would take truths that we probably have all heard before and sink them deeper into the foundation of our souls so that we would be joyful people who exclaim the greatness and proclaim the greatness and boast of the greatness of our God. So we just ask, Lord God, that you would help us this morning as we wrestle with this passage, as we rejoice in this passage this morning, we pray that you would help us and that you would glorify your name and you would build up your church so that we would be your spotless bride. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, I want to talk with you about God's unshakable kingdom. And to do that, I want to tell you a little story. Last week, I was in the Boundary Waters, Minnesota, on a canoe trip. Wonderful, wonderful trip. Except for one part of it, which was only, in hindsight, 50% wonderful. Most portages, as you go from one lake to another, 
the portage and the trail comes directly up next to the lake. So you just take all of your gear, your canoe, and you just walk immediately out on dry path to the next lake. And that is really wonderful. And some of them have a little bay where there's weeds growing up and there's a little stream, really picturesque. And it's really good in like May or June when the water's high and the canoe can actually float through that little stream. But in August, where it's hot and there's not as much rain, there's only about six inches of water in those streams, and the canoe won't float through it. So what do you have to do to get the canoe through there? You have to get out of the canoe. And unfortunately, it's not just mud, it's muck, and a lot of it. So much so that on our first endeavor, one of the guys in our canoe got out planted, and up to his waist in muck. (laughs) That's how soft and gooey it was. I actually took pictures and videotaped it, because it's just so unbelievable. And of course, I dreaded this part of the trip until I got home and shared it with my kids and my seven-year-old, look at that and said, that looks like fun. (laughs) And I thought, you know, Maybe I missed an opportunity there to rejoice in slopping through muck. The seven-year-old in me maybe looks back at that with some fondness. The 37-year-old in me did not like that. That's a picture, as I thought about 2 Samuel 17, our chapter this morning, um, and how that is a picture of God's kingdom and how unshakable it is. In the opposite sense, right? The muckwalk gives us, I think, a perfect picture of exactly what the kingdom of God is not like. The kingdom of God does not let you sink that way. The kingdom of God is not soft muck that you sink into and get stuck in. The kingdom of God is a sure foundation. It is a rock That will never be moved. It will never let you sink. And it's that way because God is the sovereign God, the almighty God. Now, let's do a little quick review here. David is the king of Israel, and his embittered son, Absalom, has tried to overtake his kingdom. He's led a coup against him. And he's driven David out of the city of Jerusalem where he was ruling from. And the situation that David finds himself in is that he's facing the discipline of the Lord for his sin way back in chapter 11 and 12 against Bathsheba and Uriah. And God's kingdom, which David is placed in charge of, seems to be hanging by a thread. Yet at the very same time, God's discipline for David, David's sin, and how God is against David, we see how God is actually also for David and working steadfast love and grace towards him. At the very same time, isn't that amazing? The wisdom of God is just baffling. So God seems to be working against David, but ultimately he's working for him in his favor. 
right in the middle of David's darkest hour, God begins to demonstrate his greatest grace for David. While David was on the run, trying to stay alive, he encounters a group of people, one of them, a foreigner nonetheless, who's named as Hushai. And Hushai is described as a friend of David. Now at the time, David probably didn't even realize the extent of blessing that Hushai would be to him. He probably didn't know that Hushai would save David's life. He probably didn't know that he would save David's kingship. And more importantly, save the kingdom of God. Now if you're a child of God, you can pause here and take a little parenthesis here. If you're a child of God, God is always up to more at the moment in your life than you would ever realize. God is always doing something perhaps right under your nose that if you could only see it, wow, would that change your perspective. Child of God, God is doing things in your life. He's accomplishing purposes in your life and you may not even realize it. But he's working for your good. Even if you are facing the discipline of God and he is against you in certain ways, if you are a child of God, he is ultimately working for the good of those who love God. Romans 8:28. God works all things together for good. And that's the beauty of being a child of God. And oftentimes, he's using things that are right under your nose that you may not even see. You may not even identify it as that. So it's a call to faith. It's a call to encouragement to you. Now, Hushai is David's friend, and he has the ability to do something that David couldn't do for himself. Namely, he could enter the city of Jerusalem, and he could advocate on David's behalf to bring him back in. So let's talk a little bit about Ahithophel and Hushai. Because there's a bit of a showdown going on in chapter 17. We heard last week of Ahithophel, and he was the counsel giver to Absalom. And we also hear that Ahithophel's words were treated as if they were the word of God themselves. That's how serious the counsel of Ahithophel was taken. And Absalom goes to Ahithophel. Last week we learned in chapter 16 that Ahithophel told Absalom to go into the concubines that David left in charge of the palace. And by so doing, he was signifying a public break from David's leadership. And Absalom followed that advice and he did that advice. And this week, he's got another question that he needs counsel for. So he goes to Ahithophel yet again. And this time, Ahithophel provides good advice. The good counsel, as it says in verse 14. Now, by good counsel, I think we should qualify this real quick. By good counsel, when the scripture says that Ahithophel offered him good counsel, I don't think what, he, what God is saying is that it was good counsel in the terms of moral purity or righteousness. I think what it means is that Ahithophel offered Absalom good counsel, namely that it would have been effective to accomplish the cause of Absalom. If Absalom would have followed this advice, he would have succeeded more than likely in his endeavor. 
In that sense, it was good counsel. He says, this is Ahithophel saying, this was his, his advice. David is weary, right? And he was. Let me attack him and let me do it tonight. And let me kill only him. I'll raise up a bunch of men. We'll go after him. We'll kill David and kill him alone when he's least expecting it. When he's not ready for us, right? That was the advice. And then this way, all of the other men who will be spared, they'll view this as kind of a peaceful raid And then they'll join you as king after David is dead and you're a king. That was the counsel of Ahithophel. Absalom likes the advice, but this time he mysteriously, mysteriously consults a second opinion. Who does he consult? Starting in verse 5, Hushai. Who's Hushai? David's friend. Why does he get this second advice? (laughs) Absalom calls Hushai, and he actually divulges. There's another little detail. He actually divulges to Hushai what Ahithophel had counseled him. He didn't have to divulge the details of Ahithophel's plan, right? He could have just said, what's your take on this? Here's the situation. What do you suggest I do? Hushai is in a very good situation here because he actually knows what the counsel that Ahithophel gave him was. So now he can poke holes in it, right? So Hushai, being David's friend, starts by, I think, slighting slighting his counsel, slighting the counsel of Ahithophel. And how does he do that? Well, he starts in, you know, you know that David and his men are valiant men. How is he sliding Ahithophel there? Well, you know this, Absalom, as opposed to Ahithophel. Clearly, he missed it. Clearly, his advice is not trustworthy. But you, on the other hand, you know that David is this valiant man of war. You know better than Ahithophel. So starting there, he's sliding him right off the bat. Hushai says he's got it all wrong. Everyone knows that your dad is an expert at war, and he knows that his men are valiant, and if they get crossed and if they get enraged, they're going to be like mama bears robbed of their cubs. And if you let Ahithophel go against him tonight, that's what's going to happen, and your men are going to be chased away, and they're going to be running away in fear, and you don't want that to happen, do you? No, of course not. You don't want that to happen. So here's what we'll do. And he seems to get more cunning in verse 11. He appeals, it seems, to Absalom's arrogance. Right? It's almost like he comes next to him, puts his arm around him. (laughs) Absalom, Absalom, don't you see it? We want all of Israel to follow you. Right? That's the goal here. Oh, it sends tingles down Absalom's spine. Oh, all of Israel. Ah. We want all Israel to follow you. And you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's plan this out a little bit better. Let's pick a different time to sneak up on David. And let's not just wipe out David. Let's wipe out all of his men. Let's just clean them out clean. Because after all, 
We don't want any revolts from his valiant men or anything like that. We want total allegiance to King Absalom. Can you see it? Absalom. Oh, oh, I like his. Yep. Hushai. We're going with Hushai. That's better. Arrogant Absalom likes the sound of what Hushai is laying down. He goes with Hushai's counsel. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God here. You see, there's a lot of human elements through this narrative. Do you guys see that? Hushai is awfully cunning. Absalom has his own identity and his own character and his own person that's playing a part in this too. But in verse 14, this passage makes no mistake. It wants us to understand something. And what does it want us to understand? Yeah, the human element played a part in this, but this happened, why? Because the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. It wants us to know that. It wants us to know that, yes, the human element played a part in this, but make no mistake, behind all of the actions of man, behind all of the decisions of the king, it's not up for grabs. It is orchestrated by the sovereign hand of the Almighty God. Which means that life isn't random. The outcome is never up for grabs. In God's eyes, it is always measured and it is always sure. And the scripture wants us to know this. It wants us to know this at this outcome. He, I think he wants us to know that God makes promises, he keeps promises, and his kingdom isn't just a flash in the pan, here one day, gone the next. No, it is in the hands of an almighty God. And nothing is going to thwart the purposes of God. Here's what Isaiah 46, 9-11 through 11 says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Ahithophel had his counsel. Hushai had his counsel. You know, the only counselor that really mattered at the table was God, because it's his counsel that stands. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So to say that God ordained this outcome is saying more than God knew what the outcome would be. To say that God ordained this outcome is to say more than he knew how it was going to end up. He did know that, but he knew more. And he did more. It means that God wanted this outcome and God actually performs this outcome. God is not a mere planner. He's not a fortune teller. In the words of John Piper, God knows what's coming because he plans 
what's coming, and he performs what he plans. So God knows what's coming because he plans it, and he actually performs it and executes it. And he does that with all history, all humanity, everything. The Bible also tells us very clearly that the motive of God in everything that he does is to reveal his glory, to display his glory. So when God gives counsel, he doesn't give counsel as a man gives counsel, right? And vice versa. When we plan things, we don't talk about it in terms of the way that God would talk about it. It's not as if I plan a nice date for my wife, right? And we wind up sitting at a lake watching the sunset. And she turns over and says, this is just wonderful. Yeah, of course it is, darling. I ordained it to be this way. Right? (laughs) We don't talk like that. I don't talk like that. I hope you don't either. If you do, you need help. Right? But yet at the same time, she's thankful for my planning. It could have went a million other ways, right? But I planned it. She's thankful. And deep down, there's another joy to that. There's a sense of God gave us something really special here. God orchestrated all of this and it just kind of came together. Right? When God gives counsel, he doesn't give counsel the way a man gives counsel. You see, Hushai, he made his counsel. He put in his bid. But you know, he didn't even stick around for the answer. Why? He doesn't know what the outcome's going to be. He hightails it out of there, and he goes and finds David and says, Hey, listen, I don't know which way Absalom's going to go with this one, but I'll tell you what, I know what Ahithophel has planned for you. I know what's coming for you if Absalom decides to go his way. You see, the matter was never in question for God. He didn't know which way Absalom was going to go. He wasn't waiting for Absalom to make a decision. Why? Because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1 God is sovereign over the decisions of man, God is sovereign over the forces of nature. God is sovereign over the events of history. God is sovereign over who's going to be president. God is sovereign over all things. And again, to quote John Piper, God's sovereignty means that he has the rightful authority, he has the wisdom, and he has the power to do all that he pleases. God has the right, the wisdom, and the power to do all that he pleases. Now, this is a great comfort to us at GCF. We love this truth at this church. We love the sovereignty of God at this church. God made a promise to David, and God will keep his promise to David. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. It is not like the muckwalk that I referred to earlier. It is unshakable. It is a rock. It is unchanging. No matter how much counsel is taken against it, no matter how much it is mocked, no matter how much it is scorned, no matter how much it is restricted, 
or contested, God's purposes will never be frustrated. God is the unfrustratable God. And if God is for us, who can stand against? The chapter 17 ends with a testimony of the faithfulness of three men that proved to be a wonderful example to us. Three men, Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. By the way, don't you just love the name Barzillai? What a manly name. It's so manly. I, I bet it's off the table for anybody to name their child Barzillai. But if you did, I bet he'd probably have a hairy chest and be a master spearfisher by age eight. <laughs> Barzillai. <laughs> Dale Ralph Davis has this to say about these three men. And I think they're a great example for us. Israel had a covenant king, and they had no right to abandon him. There they are at the end, standing by David, supporting his cause. They had no right to abandon him, nor did they. It should require no imagination to see that covenantally, the Christian disciple stands in the same relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David and Yahweh's appointed king. No matter how heavy the assault upon his authority and rule, no matter how much he is demeaned or despised, we are under orders to go on confessing him, that's Christ, and supporting his subjects. Second Samuel shows, Second Samuel 17 shows God's kingdom under attack, but also under his protection. This is why we love the sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters. Because at the end of the day, God's purposes are locked up in his hand and nothing is going to mess with that. Now this reality is wonderful comfort and a tremendous confidence, I think, to the people of God. That's what the purpose of fleshing out the sovereignty of God is. But at the same time, it is also a confrontation. I want to talk about this just for a minute. It's a confrontation to us. It confronts us. And I'm not talking about the many areas of wrestling that come with the sovereignty of God. And there are many, are there not? Are we just robots then? God controls everything? That is a valid question. And the short answer to that one is no, <laughs> but I can't sess that one out for us this morning. I'll leave that to you guys to work on that. Another one is, who's, who's responsible for evil then? Is not God responsible for evil if he controls everything? And we again believe, no, God rules in a way in which he distances himself from evil. He's not responsible for that. But these are legitimate questions and I just appreciate your grace and allowing me to bring up the sovereignty of God. And I hope you can understand how difficult it is to talk about these things because there's a jillion rabbit trails you can go down. And then when you go down a rabbit trail and deal with that one, there's another jillion rabbit trails that open up there too. So this is part of the reason why God is bigger than we could ever imagine. 
And if we get to a point where, yeah, I got this down, I know what I think about it, that's a dangerous place to be because God is bigger than that. But I want to talk about this one way that, this, that the sovereignty of God confronts us. It, con- it confronts us in that it exposes where our hearts are not aligned with God's purposes and it exposes where our hearts are not satisfied with his glory. Here's what I mean by that. Now I think deep down, if you know me and I know you, I believe um, that you all understand that God is sovereign and that he will win in the end. I think we know that. But what troubles us is the details of the battle. You see, this gives us a security, but it doesn't give us everything that we want. Because it doesn't answer all the questions in between. You see, God's sovereignty doesn't make any promises about, say, this church. Will we survive? Will we thrive? It doesn't answer that question, does it? It doesn't give us the answer. It doesn't answer what will happen to our economy or your retirement fund. There's no promises on that one. On that one. What, will, what will happen to religious freedom, for instance? No promises. Who's going to be elected? No promises on that one. Not that that would even matter. What kind of world will my kids grow up in and have to make a living in? What kind of country will they inherit? Will they have safety? Will they have prosperity? Will they have everything that I want them to have? There's no promises on that one. So what we have is the guarantee of God's victory. We have that guarantee, right? But what we really want, if we're being honest, is we want life to go according to the counsel of my will. And I think that's where the sovereignty of God and how he ordains everything to happen confronts us. It's natural to be concerned and engaged in the flow of events, to use our gifts and to use our abilities and our resources to influence the flow of things, to build God's kingdom. But at the end of the day, to the extent that God's sovereignty doesn't comfort you might be the extent that it confronts where you are more aligned with your purposes instead of his and where you are more invested in your wishes instead of God's glory. Where is it that I want what I want more than I am delighted in God being glorified? Is that really what moves me? Is that really what controls me? Now, God tells us in verse 14 that behind everything that happens, the Lord ordained it. God ordains it. He wants his people to know what it means for God to be God. Do we know, do you know what it means for God to be God? To be God's people, and this is where we take comfort, to be God's people means we take comfort and confidence 
in the reality that God works all things after the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11. And therefore, in that process, we can learn to gladly surrender to Him. And how can we learn to surrender to Him who works all things after the counsel of His will? Because we know that everything that comes our way and everything that will come our way comes stamped with the authority, with the wisdom, and with the power of an eternally good God. So our lives too, our lives too, who rejoice in this truth of God's sovereignty, is on a trajectory of being conformed more and more to being okay with the fact that God's counsel stands, not mine. And if you stick around long enough, if you cling to him and surrender yourself to him, I think the growth of faith and the arc of your character will learn to rejoice. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he gets his way. Praise the Lord that he is in control of everything. Praise the Lord that I don't have to bear the burden of what's going to happen tomorrow. That's not your burden to bear. It's not mine. Because God's going to make it happen according to his wisdom, according to his love, according to his power. He's got it. He has got it. And he has always had it too. In your past, he has had it. Now, I want to end on this note. I want to talk about friends. This is a whole other sermon. Talking about friendship, probably. Hushai is a good friend. And in this case, he saves David. And I think that this points us to Christ. In the way that Christ saves us. David was at the point where he needed salvation. And he got it. And he got it from a friend, Hushai. David was the one who was cast out of the city, his home. He needed someone to intervene on his behalf and bring him back home. And Hushai does this as a good friend. Without Hushai, where would David be, really? Where would he be? We see the grace of God in providing Hushai in the steadfast love of God and sending Hushai at just the right time. (laughs) You know, as I thought about friends, I thought a lot about childhood friends. Some of the best friends you ever have are when you're a kid, when you're young. Maybe you don't relate to that. Nothing like a good friend, amen? There's nothing like a good friend. And everybody has access to that good friend in Christ. Everyone has a good friend 
and yes, their Savior, yes, their King, but Jesus is also a friend who God sends at just the right time, right when you're in the pit of despair, going down because of your sin. Jesus, the good friend, stands in your way and says, I'll take that. I'll take your sin. I'll give you life. What a good friend. He's a friend who loves at all times and a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Those who know Jesus as friend are saved from their sins and they too, because of it, have an unshakable hope and an unshakable future because they are in an unshakable kingdom and that is secured through his friendship to us. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. You are good. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have all things in your control. Teach us, Lord God, because you came to us in friendship, seeking friendship. Teach us that you only mean us good. Teach us, Lord God, by your grace to align our life so that we are not controlled by the counsel of our own will, but to rest and surrender with joy and gladness and confidence and comfort that you work all things after the counsel of your will. Lord, we need your help. We need your help. And we're confident that you're willing to give it and that you will give it. So we rejoice in that, and we're thankful for who you are, and we're thankful, Lord God, that we are your children. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.